here. It's our last time to meet for the semester. So you guys have persevered to the end. I appreciate that. And uh, uh, Lord, Lord willing, I, I may be back at some point. Uh, next, next semester, I've got another commitment. Uh, but I've heard you've got some good uh, slots. Yes, I didn't know if that was publicly announced yet. Dr. Combs is coming back. So by Zoom, yes, he's going to be virtually here. So, no, no test tonight. So uh, I have to get final exams ready for my students at the seminary next week. So uh, th those, uh, I don't know. I think I'm pretty nice. I think I'm pretty nice. But you'd have to ask them. I might be biased. Yeah. All right. Well, it's good to see everybody here. Uh, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into page 77 there in the notes. Father, I am grateful uh, to be here tonight. Uh, Father, we've given thanks many times, and we want to do it once more this semester just for uh, this opportunity, uh, this church, uh, the resources that you've uh, put in um, here, put in place, uh, everybody that's helped. I'm grateful that you've spoken to us in your word. I'm thankful that your righteousness has been displayed through Jesus Christ in making us who were sinners righteous. And I'm thankful that his fame is spreading, and I pray that it would continue to spread, that he would continue to build his church. I pray that tonight you'd help us through your spirit to listen very carefully to your word and together keep becoming more like your son. And we ask for this help in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump into uh, chapter 15 here in just a second. I think I left off somewhere on page 77. Uh, the chapter break is a little bit unfortunate because really when Paul begins to speak in chapter 15, what we call chapter 15, it's still pretty much the same section, you know, because the chapter numbers were added later. Just to recap a little bit of what we said last time, we said that even though Paul never uses the word here in Romans, conscience, what he's discussing does have to do with your conscience. And in a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians, he does use the word. Uh, your conscience is your own consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's like a smoke detector or like the alarm that might be going off in an airplane if you were headed towards a mountain. And you might think the alarm is wrong uh, and it could be needing some calibration but if you ignore the alarm, it can have drastic consequences. And because it's actually what you believe to be right and wrong, you believe that this is God's will, if you go against it, it's always sin. Even if your conscience was calibrated incorrectly, the right thing to do is still to follow your conscience. To go against your conscience is, is sin. And just a couple of those little white uh, circular bullet points there at the bottom of that page to kind of sum up what Paul said, I think there's two conclusions that we can draw from everything that he said to this point. Number one, we should limit our freedom if we find that our actions are encouraging another believer to sin by ignoring his conscience. So Paul isn't directly addressing the issue of, well, what if someone is just kind of bothered by what you're doing? What if it's not their personal preference? There are biblical principles that would apply there, 
but what he's directly addressing is, well, what if what you're doing actually is causing your brother to sin? Um, his answer would then be, you should limit your own freedom out of love for your brother or sister. Number two, if we persist in using our freedom in a way that causes a professing believer to ignore his conscience, we run the risk of causing him to abandon his conscience completely and depart from the faith. We would then be guilty of contributing to someone's apostasy. So many of the points that I made during this section, the definition that's up there on the screen, it was all from a very helpful little book by Crowley and Nacelli. Uh, they do use the illustration of a real-life example, uh, an airplane disaster that occurred in the early 80s, where according to the voice cockpit recorder, where we can hear the pilot's last words, he hears the warning going off, telling him to pull up, you know, that automated voice, pull up, pull up, and he talks back to the computer, basically ignores it because he thinks it's wrong, and then he tragically flew into a mountain that he couldn't see. All right, that would be an example of the danger of not listening to your conscience. If you, need, if you think the conscience needs to be fixed, then Scripture provides us the tools for fixing it. But as long as you personally think, think that something is right or wrong, you need to listen to your conscience, and you have to be willing for your brother or sister to have a conscience that tells them something different than what your conscience is, is telling you. Each of us must listen to their own conscience. So then he goes on in uh, chapter 5. He's still continuing his discussion of the strong and the weak, turning the page to page 78. He summarizes his arguments in verses 14, 1 through 23. Those who are strong, and Paul includes himself in this group, should seek to lovingly encourage the weak and not seek to please themselves. So that's kind of his summary statement of what he said. And then he supports it. So when you see in our Bibles, verse 3, we've got that little word for. That's a pretty good clue that what he's about to say is his reason or his basis for what he just said. The reason why is because Jesus Christ himself did not seek to please just himself but he actually endured insults, especially on the way to the crucifixion, to the cross, and he did that with an eye towards others, what he could accomplish for other people. Uh, Paul quotes there from Psalm 69, uh, verse 9. He says, I'm reading here from verse 3, the quoted part from the Old Testament says, The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Again, this seems to be one of those places where originally uh, David, uh, he likely is referring to himself. He could also be functioning as a prophet, and he could know that he's talking about the Messiah. But more likely, he's just talking about himself, how he, as a righteous person in this world, endured insults. But of course, what he says about himself also applies to his greater son, Jesus. In verse 4, then, Paul reminds his readers that despite not being under the Old Testament law, the Old Testament, including Psalm 69 as Scripture, still instructs and encourages us. So when we read Old Testament passages, it's not that we're reading somebody else's mail. You know, we're not snooping into something. Even if it's, direct, if, even if it's not directly addressed to us, 
it still comes out of God's mouth. It's still inspired scripture. It still reveals God's character. It still can apply to new situations today. And it's still valuable for our instruction. Paul actually can say here that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So God was behind the scenes superintending or guiding all of those Old Testament writers so that what they wrote would still be very helpful to us even today, thousands of years later. Verses 5 and 6 then, that very last bullet point on the page, are a prayer by Paul for the unity of the believers in Rome. Let me read those for us. So verses 5 and 6, he says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has had a specific thing that was going on in the church in Rome that he wanted to address. He spent quite a bit of ink, what we would call a chapter and a half, addressing that situation, telling them exactly what they should do, but then he also prays that God would work through this process to achieve his purposes. It's not just enough for these believers to hear Paul and start doing it, although that's required, but it also requires a supernatural work of, of God. And so when we pray for things, we're acknowledging that we can't do them in and of ourselves, that we actually are relying on God. Uh, so why does he pray? Paul wants to see the believers united. Well, why does he want them to be united? He says it's so that, so that would be his purpose, it would be so that they can together glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I had some folks tell me after uh, we were just going through this passage last week that this is one of their favorite portions of this passage, and I think that's rightfully so, because I think this is what Paul has been driving for all along. He wants to see what he's calling the strong and the weak, united and loving each other in the church so that together as one church, one family, they can together with one voice give praise to our God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in chapter 16, verse 17, so this is be looking ahead, if you knew the rest of the story, so to speak, where Paul's headed, you know there that Paul tells us that there are some professing believers that we will need to separate from uh, because they're teaching heretical doctrine. Uh, he's going to say in that passage that they themselves are actually the ones who are causing divisions. I put that here because sometimes you could overemphasize unity at the expense of being true to faithful doctrine, right? Uh, if you stand up for right doctrine, you could be accused of being uh, non-united, of promoting disunity. But Paul always puts the responsibility for the disunity on the heretic. It's the heretic who caused the disunity. When he started teaching something that was contrary to Scripture, he's the one who's putting a wedge between himself and Orthodox Christianity. It's our responsibility, Paul says there, to mark him, to, to note him, and then to withdraw and separate from him. But it's not our responsibility to embrace him and welcome him in the name of being uni united. But among true believers who profess true Orthodox Christianity, who listen to what Scripture has to say, 
Paul wants to see all of them together glorifying God with one mind, he says, and one voice. And these verses can probably be viewed as Paul's purpose for writing the letter to the Romans. Everything that Paul has said in the letter about the believer's vertical relationship with God has prepared for this emphasis on the believer's horizontal relationship with believers who differ from him on non-essential matters. So then, similar to verse 1, this next paragraph, verses 7 through 13, it starts with another command that summarizes everything that Paul said in this wider section. He's no longer addressing just the strong, but he's making a general call to all believers to accept each other. So verse 7 says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. And if you flip back in your Bibles and you look at chapter 14 in verse 1, remember the, the command there is to accept the one whose faith is weak. It's the same command both times. It provides bookends to this section. So it means the same thing in both places. We talked about it briefly before, but just to remind ourselves, accept doesn't just mean accept them as a fellow member, like welcome them into your church. It would include that, but it means more than that, right? You could accept someone into membership of the church, but then still not treat them as a family member. You could still hold them at arm's length. You could, you could not welcome them into your inner circle, so to speak. And that, I think that would be a violation of what Paul is saying here. He's talking about something a little warmer, something that involves actual love for a brother or sister. We can see this with some of the other places in the New Testament and other early Christian writings where that same word appears. So, for example, when uh, the apostle uh, Paul is going to Rome and Luke is telling us the story about the shipwreck, I remember in God's providence, he ends up having Paul's ship wreck on that little tiny island of Malta so that those people could hear about Christ. It says there, the islanders on Malta showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and they welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. So the, the welcoming there isn't just like, hi. It was actually, they did something for them, right? They, they provided for these, these uh, shipwrecked sailors and for Paul. Or if, uh, in uh, Philemon, in verse 17, Paul says, so if you consider me a partner Welcome him, he's talking about Onesimus, as you would welcome me. Another thing we can do is we can see how words were used by other Christians at that same time or other Greek speakers. So this is by a man named Clement. This isn't scripture, but this is the letter that he writes. Almost the same time that the book of Revelation is written. Uh, he's writing to the church in Corinth about 30 years after Paul writes to the Corinthians. And he says here, In love the Master received us because of the love he had for us. Jesus Christ, our Lord, in accordance with God's will, gave his blood for us and his flesh for our flesh and his life for our lives. So this is, well, it's two things. It's one, it's a pretty early example of a Christian who's reading the New Testament and realizes that there's such a thing that we call a substitutionary atonement where Jesus Christ gave himself in place of us, right? As he says, it, it was his blood for us, his flesh for our flesh, his life for our lives. But secondly, it also illustrates this word welcomed, right? 
Uh, when, when it says here that the master welcomed us, it wasn't just like a hi, right? It was that he actually loved us. He actually cared for us. He actually did something for us, and he actually considers you and I as part of his family. That's the same type of attitude that we should then have inside of the church, inside of the assembly. That's Paul's command to us there in verse 7. Well, just that word all by itself, I think, makes a pretty convincing argument for we should do it, right? But as Paul likes to do, he'll go on to give his, his grounds, his reasons, so his, his support for why he's doing this. And you guessed it, it's that little word for, right? So in our Bibles, it's the, the word for that starts out verse 8. So the command is in verse 7. The reason is because Christ became a servant to the circumcision, to the Jewish people. So why should you welcome other people, even if they're different than you? Because Jesus Christ left us a model. He, as the Jewish Messiah, gave himself to be a servant also to uh, other people who were different from both Jewish people, and then as the passage continues, also to those who were non-Jews. So he became a servant of the Jews for the purpose of keeping the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles would also glorify God for his mercy. That's what he says in verse 8. So it's a double purpose. He did this, he became a servant, so that he could keep the promises made to the patriarchs, and so that he also could bring Gentiles to the point where they would be glorifying God for his mercy to them. And then Paul explains this second purpose, by showing that it, us that it was always God's intention uh, to, or was always God's plan for the Gentiles to praise him alongside the Jewish people. So by working towards the unity of Jewish and Gentile believers, Paul, and by extension, all of us as believers, are working towards a plan God revealed to us in the Old Testament. So if we're trying to promote unity in our church, even among lines where, humanly speaking, people shouldn't get along, then we're actually working towards Christ's mission. It was his mission in coming in order for there someday to be a new world with a new people, and that new people, we will all be the same. We're not just going to be one big homogenous blob. There's going to be a variety of us, but we're all going to be held together by our love and loyalty to our king and we will serve him forever, bringing praises to our God through him. So on the other hand, if we're not working towards unity in the church, if we're actually doing things that cause disunity, that would mean that we're actually working at odds with Christ's mission. We're actually working against his plan that God the Father had for him even before the world began. So lots of, we'll come back to this, this point here in a little bit, but lots of Old Testament passages that make it very clear that it was always God's intention to save uh, all kinds of different Gentiles. And then finally, verse 13 is a prayer for the Roman Christians, which ends this section of the letter and incorporates many of the important topics of the letter to this point. So this is what he says then in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
I'll stop there for a second. That's the end of that big section that started chapter 14, verse 1 through to here. Now Paul's going to move into his final uh, section where he describes his ministry, and then he's going to close out his letter. So I'll just pause there for a second, catch my breath, see if you guys have a question. We're trying to move fast. There's a lot of notes tonight, right? Yeah. When I see Dr. Combs, he's going to ask me, did you finish the class, right? Did you finish those notes? I guarantee it's going to be the first thing he asks me, so I'll have to have an answer for it. Oh, really? Okay. It's just because I went fast at some point, so, so I, re I really cheated, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go then to the bottom of the page. So page 79, bottom of the page, you can see that we're moving into this last section that goes from verse 14 into what we call uh, verse 16. And it begins here with uh, what Paul says in verse 14. So let me read that. He says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. So, you know, Paul has had, he's struck a nice balance, I think, all through the letter. He's said some pretty strong things to them. He, he has confidence or boldness in doing that because he knows he's an apostle who speaks for Jesus Christ, and he's doing it for their good. Uh, but all the while... He's assuming the best of this church in Rome, right? He's assuming that these are genuine Christians who will listen to its instructions. He says, I'm convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and even competent to instruct one another. Uh, he goes on there uh, to say he compares his ministry in verses 15, well, first in verse 15, he calls himself an apostle. And then in verse 16, he compares it to being a priest, all right? So he's using a little bit of a, a metaphor here, a figure of speech. He's not actually a priest. He, he knows that. He's, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, so he's not thinking of himself as a Levitical priest. But he's comparing what he does as an apostle to a priest, okay? The purpose, he says, so that is he can offer Gentile converts as a sacrifice to God. So that's why he uses the priestly language. So when he visualizes his ministry, one way he looks at it is he goes out and he preaches the gospel. He sees Gentiles coming to Christ, and then he can offer them, so to speak, as a thanks offering back to God. He can bring them to God and give thanks to God for what's been accomplished in their lives. He then goes on um, to say here, um, let me read verse 16, To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When you read that, it could be misunderstood as if he's boasting in his own achievements. This happens a couple times in Paul's letters. He'll He'll refer to his own ministry or what's been happening. You know, if someone today stood up and started talking about all the converts that they'd seen and all the successes that they'd had in ministry, we would question that, right? We would question their motives. Uh, but I think we should be at least sympathetic towards Paul, that he probably has a good reason for doing this. And also, since it's Scripture, God is leading him to do this. 
And also right here in the context, you can see that he's very quick to move the, the credit, the glory to God. So he just sees himself as an instrument that God is using. It is God then, you know, picking up in the kind of towards the top third of that paragraph, it's God then who deserves the credit for what has been accomplished. So in verse 18, Paul supports with a little word for what he's just said by giving Christ credit for the Gentiles who have been converted. Notice the emphasis is on the triune God. There's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. So how do these people go from being pagans who have no love for God, have no desire, no desire to turn from their sins and, and put a trust in God? Well, it's because there's a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. There's a regeneration and then an ongoing progressive sanctification. So there's the Spirit, there's Christ, who's the one who accomplishes salvation. He doesn't actually state it here, but it would be throughout his letter and the New Testament. And then there's the Father, these converts that are being offered like sacrifices back to God. At the end of verse 18, Paul refers to the goal of his ministry as the obedience of the Gentiles. So that refers to their conversion. So seeing people get saved, he refers to it as the obedience of the Gentiles. That sounds very much like something he said all the way back in, in chapter 1. He, he's probably not just thinking of obedience as in you need to obey the command to repent and believe. It is that, but it's more than that, right? There's a, there's a conversion, a change that takes place that actually leads to ongoing obedience in the lives of genuine believers. And so he's referring to this as the obedience of Gentiles. So that's his goal. He wants to see obedience. Well, how does he do this? He does it by means of word and deed. So, again, he just sees himself as an instrument. You know, the, the axe doesn't get credit for chopping down the tree. It's the person who's swinging the axe, right? Yes, God is using Paul to see the obedience of the Gentiles, but he's just a means, and the means isn't even really in himself. It's through the words and the deeds, and Paul would say, and they're not actually my own words, right? I've just been given a message that I share with people. So at the beginning of verse 19 then, Paul goes on to further describe what he means by these means. He calls it the power of signs and wonders and through the power of the Spirit. So some of Paul's deeds would have included spectacular signs or what we would often call miracles, things that you know, we can't repeat today. So we can repeat the word part. We still have the powerful word of God that's able to change lives, right? First Peter says that we, we see people born again through the word. It's through the power of the word. Uh, when, while the word was still being written, while the New Testament was still ongoing and hadn't yet been finished, it seems that God gave that early generation of Christians, that foundational generation, some apostles and prophets who could do spectacular things, Paul himself included. So this would be some examples of some of the things that Paul did that we have description of. So in Acts chapter 13, uh, he was able to make that man blind. In chapter 14, it just talks about uh, him and Barnabas just performing signs and wonders. Something similar in chapter 15, you know, just kind of a general statement that they do things. 
And then later in chapter 19, uh, it says that God's doing extraordinary miracles through Paul to the point where he can actually have cloth handkerchiefs, piece of cloth that have touched him that he can send to people and be healed, right? So we, we talked about this, I think, two classes ago, this, this idea of signs and miracles. And, you know, I argued there, and, and in two weeks I haven't changed my mind, that these are restricted to the apostles and to the prophets. These were special things that they were able to do to lay the foundation. Paul himself, in the book of Ephesians, will talk about the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church. Once the foundation is laid and the church starts being built, you don't need to go back and redo the foundation. It's very problematic in building structures, right? The foundation is just kind of a one-time thing. And Paul himself will refer to these as distinctive to the apostles. So here he'll refer to things that were done as the marks of a true apostle, and included in those marks of a true apostle were signs, wonders, and miracles. So as they did for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, these signs validated that the apostles were providing special revelation from God at a critical point in God's dealings with his people. If you look at scripture in general, there aren't really just miracles all the way through. They're not sprinkled evenly here and there. They actually, if you look carefully, they occur in certain blocks. They occur with the life of Moses when the nation is first being founded. They occur in the life of Elijah when the nation reaches a critical turning point where they're into open Baal worship. Then, of course, they occur in the life of Jesus as he starts the church. And then they're in that foundational era when the church is being built. We're no longer at that same critical turning point in either Israel's history or the church's history. So I think there's a good reason why we're not seeing these same types of spectacular signs today. However, the last bullet point on the page, though, however, everything that Paul has done, not just the outwardly spectacular, is summed up in his final statement as the power of the Spirit. All right, anything good that we're going to accomplish, anything of lasting value uh, to build the constituency of the coming kingdom, will always have to be done through the strength that God provides. It will always have to be through the power of the Spirit. Something supernatural is still taking place when we share Scripture and people get changed by it, right? That's not something that we can do in of ourselves. And then Paul goes on to talk about how, uh, how great this ministry has been geographically. So he describes it as having been spread all the way around. So this is from the end of verse 19. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So Illyricum would be uh, towards the left-hand side of the circle. So if I put this circle up there, it'll kind of help you see. So that where it starts to become green up there on the map, the left-hand, top left-hand corner of that circle, that's what they would have called Illyricum in their day, the Roman province, or at least the region. Uh, today, we would call that the Balkan nations. So I have there in my notes, this would be like Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Montenegro. So the gospel had started all the way down there in the bottom right of that circle in Jerusalem, and it had spread through Paul's ministry up through what we would today call Turkey, He'd gone over to Greece. While he'd been in Greece, he had evidently, we don't have 
exact uh, descriptions of this in the book of Acts, but he had traveled to the north and all the way into the, what we call the Balkan regions today, the gospel had penetrated. And he can say, I've fully proclaimed the gospel. I fully preached the gospel. He doesn't mean I've been in every single village and I've personally talked to every single person. We know for sure that's not what he means. But he's not, I think, also just being hyperbolic, right? What he's actually saying, I think, is I've been to strategic main cities throughout this whole region. And there's been churches started, right? And there's enough of these churches planted in strategic areas that those churches can then go out and make sure the gospel penetrates their surrounding areas. You, you see something strategic about Paul, right? He's thinking carefully about his mission. This is something from his life that we can copy today. We can think about places in this world where the gospel either has not been proclaimed at all or that there's, enough, there's not enough churches, healthy churches, that they can get it out into the surrounding areas. There's maybe just a few Christians. And then we can think about how we could strategically see healthy churches planted in those regions so that the gospel would spread, so that we could say, like Paul, that the gospel has been fully proclaimed in this region. And now he says, because he's finished his work here, right? we would, we would think, well, there's probably lots of people that are unsaved in that region, Paul. But he thinks that he's completed his role as an apostle, and so now he wants to go on to the west. He, wants, he, he says he wants to go all the way to Spain, the purple there on the far left, and so he sees Rome as a base for that. He wants the church in Rome to be healthy, not just for their own good, so that they can together with one voice proclaim or praise God, but also so that they can help him continue on the mission. So a healthy church will always be a church that's looking out to plant other churches in the area. And you can see this from Paul's own strategy. So let's go to the next page. Page 81, top of the page, Paul explains that he's been trying to preach about Christ in new places. He calls it places where Christ uh, was already named. That's not where he wants to go. So the opposite would be places where Christ is not named, rather than places where someone else has already preached. Paul supports this strategy by quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 15, in verse 21. So in our Bibles, verse 21, most of us, we have that in, indented to let us know that's a quotation. And that one there is from Psalm, I said, oh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 52, verse 15. Yep, I had it right. For a second, I thought I had that wrong. I looked down at my Bible and it looked different to me, but it's Isaiah 52, 15. So we know this passage. Isaiah 52 goes into Isaiah 53, the famous suffering servant passage that says that we all, like sheep, had gone astray, that God had laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all, uh, that we previously, the Jewish people, had thought that he was cursed because he was a covenant breaker, but actually now, with hindsight, they say he was cursed for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was, he was pierced for our iniquities. But just a few lines earlier, in what we call chapter 52, it, it tells the beginning of the story. So before there was hindsight and people looked back at Jesus Christ and saw him for what he truly was, when he was here on earth, he actually was despised and rejected by men. 
This is what it says in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52. See, my servant will act wisely. This is God, the Father, speaking of the Son. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. So it's a, it's a poetical passage, it's a prophetic passage, it's describing kings who previously would have looked at Jesus and seen him as not very valuable, nothing special about him. Uh, they'll have to close their mouths and at some point recognize that he truly was somebody that they hadn't seen before. They'll actually uh, change their minds because things that they previously had not heard about him have now been told to them. And so Paul quotes this passage because he sees him as he sees himself as a fulfillment of this. And we can see ourselves as a fulfillment of this, that there's people out there in this world that don't see Jesus Christ as valuable. And even when we start telling them about Jesus, at first the story will seem very foolish to them, right? It'll seem contradictory. It won't seem wise. But there's actually, as we share the message, there's a power in the message that God can use to change people's lives so that they will then look back at Jesus and realize he wasn't who they first saw him to be. And that's why Paul wants to go to new places where people haven't yet heard about Christ because then this prophecy can keep being fulfilled, right? That people can change their view of who Jesus Christ is. All right, we got just a couple minutes, then we got to stop for a break, right? So we're supposed to stop at 640. So let's go to uh, the next section there, beginning in verse 22. Paul's wanted to come to Rome, he says, but he's often been prevented. And he says, because, this is why is the way he puts it in verse 22, He's been busy completing the ministry described in verse 19. However, now that he's finished his ministry in the eastern half of the Mediterranean world, Paul hopes to relocate to Rome and use it as a base for ministry in the western Mediterranean extending to Spain. However, before he goes on to Spain, Paul wants to go back and make a trip to Jerusalem. All right? So he wants to go to Rome he explains to them why he hasn't been there earlier. It's because he's been busy completing this ministry that he just described. But before he goes to Rome, he has to go to Jerusalem. So if we're thinking now of the end of the book of Acts, we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would put it, right? His trip to Jerusalem is going to be an answer to prayer, but it's probably not going to go exactly the way he planned. And he's going to get to Rome eventually, but it's then going to be in a very unusual way. So let's Let's stop for the break now, and when we come back, he's going to ask them for a prayer request, and we'll look at the specific things he asked for. Let's go ahead and get started then. We'll wrap up our, uh, our night here. So we're on page 81 in the notes, and we were talking about the third bullet point there. So the reason why Paul isn't going directly to Rome is because he has this very important uh, responsibility of taking money to the church in Jerusalem. He talks about them as being the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. So evidently the, uh, 
first Christians in Judea had probably suffered more financially because of their uh, allegiance with Christ, their profession of faith in Christ had likely cut them off from family members, perhaps other ways of making money, uh, jobs, vocations. For a variety of reasons, uh, they were poor, where uh, these Greek, Greek churches that were being planted had resources to share. Uh, we know at least one of them, the church in Philippi, is actually uh, poor itself, but they still want to contribute, right? So it's not just that they have a lot of money so they can shave some off the top and not worry about it, but they're, they're being generous. This is a pretty big deal in Paul's letters. He refers to this uh, gift, this collection, frequently. Uh, he refers to different men who are going to travel with him. So I think a really good case can be made that he chose at least one man from every church that had contributed. Having a group of men would have probably served two purposes. It would have uh, ensured his safety on the roads, right? A man traveling by himself with a large sum of money would have been dangerous. So a group of men would have been helpful. And also, I think they all then could vouch for the fact that it all safely arrives. So Paul makes sure that this collection is all on the up and up, you know, financially speaking. He's not stealing from it. Everything that he collected is actually going to arrive for its intended purpose, its stated purpose, and, and these men can vouch for it. And then Paul himself, he says here in the NASB, or if you have a, a translation that's a little bit more literal, it's put my seal on the fruit of theirs, which the NIV helpfully clarifies that for us. Basically, he's just going to ensure that it actually arrives. So we still have that expression today, like I'm going to put my seal of approval on something. So Paul isn't just going to delegate this responsibility to someone else. He wants to personally go with the gift to make sure that it it's, um, it's, goes to its intended purpose and it's distributed. Uh, he says there the final uh, bullet point, the believers in Macedonia and Greece were pleased to contribute it, or contribute. Nobody forced them to do it. But Paul acknowledges that they had a moral obligation to help their fellow believers. So Paul will say both things. He'll say they should do it, but then he'll also say, I didn't have to make them do it. They were, they were pleased to do it. Well, you might ask, well, why should they do it? You know, what's this moral obligation? And he's going to go on to explain that Gentiles are sharing in the promises given to the Jewish people and the salvation accomplished by the Jewish Messiah. So it was right for these Gentiles to share their, their material possession with these Jewish believers who, in a sense, had shared their spiritual things with them. This sharing would be a tangible way for Gentile believers to demonstrate their recognition that they had been graciously included in the blessings promised to the patriarchs. So I think another practical thing that would have happened is Paul sees himself arriving with this money. Not only did it come from Greek churches, but he's going to have a, a sample of those Greek churches along with him. He's going to have men who are believers now from those churches that are personally going to be able to interact with these Jewish believers so that the Jewish believers can see the power of the Spirit in the rest of the Mediterranean world. So Paul hopes that the gift will be a means of promoting the unity that he also urged on the part of the Roman Christians. He goes on to refer here to the full measure of the blessing of Christ. That comes in verse 
29. Let me read that. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. It's not clear exactly what he means by that. It's possible that similar to what he said back in chapter 1 and verse 12, he's referring to the way he believes God will use them both to be a blessing to each other. So that could be his way of saying that. Uh, Despite his strong statements in chapters 14 and 15, Paul is confident that God has equipped these Roman believers to advance the gospel, which leads to his following request, right? So we're not exactly, at least I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. He seems to me that he's pointing to the fact that he thinks they're going to be a blessing to him, and then he's going to ask them to do something for him. So this is an interesting part in the letter, because you can see the apostle making prayer requests. He's actually asking these Christians, most of them that he's never met before, likely the majority of them, and they're hundreds of miles away from him, that they can actually participate in his ministry, this thing that he's going to do in Jerusalem, and the way they can participate and be a part of it is through prayer. It's something that we can always do. We can participate with believers around the world by praying for them. He, it's a tangible thing. He actually says it's a struggle. So at my church, my pastor just recently preached on this passage, so I still have that echoing in my mind, right? And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, well, if I can't be there in person, then I'll pray. Like pray, prayer is just like plan B in case I can't be there. Like if I'm there, I'm actually participating. If I can't participate, I'll pray. But here Paul says that their prayer is actually participation. It's actually part of the struggle. He calls it a struggle there. It's actually you coming alongside of Paul and actually doing something that really does matter, and that's really important. So what does he pray for? He has, or what does he want them to pray for? He has two specific requests. First of all, he asks them to pray for his safety in Judea. So he says that I may be kept safe from unbelievers in Judea. Second of all, he asks them to pray that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem would accept the gift. So he he doesn't just take that for granted, but he actually wants the Roman Christians to pray that the Jewish Christians would accept this and recognize its significance. He's likely concerned that Jewish believers would be reluctant to receive money from those who did not keep the law of Moses and is perhaps concerned that Gentile believers in Rome would disapprove of the collection because it tied them to those who still did keep the law of Moses, right? So remember I said last week the the issue between strong and weak isn't just inside the church. It's also sometimes between churches, right? So the two churches could be looking at each other and not feeling especially united, but Paul sees prayer as a remedy to that. He's actually praying that both sides would receive this this offering well. Verse 32 then gives the ultimate goal. So why pray? He says, so that. So it gives his goal for the prayer request. Paul wants to finish his mission to Jerusalem and then come to Rome with joy. So it's so that I can come to you with joy. And we know here, I'm quoting from our one of our recommended books, Paul did get to Rome and experienced some measure of joy and refreshment, but he arrived there in Roman chains. However, when Paul arrived in Rome, through an unexpected method, remember he comes in chains on a prison ship, um, he still arrives with uh, his life spared. So think about the book of Acts. 
all of the different things that happen to Paul when he gets there. Remember, he has one of these Greeks with him. He gets falsely accused of taking this Greek man into the temple courts. It causes a riot. He's about ready to be killed by this riot. You know, the same thing that he did to Stephen is about ready to happen to him. And then God has a Roman uh, centurion show up and rescue him. God has that Roman then, you know, carry him up to the uh, fortress. Uh, He's going to get lashes, but he speaks up and, uh, you know, mentions the fact that he's a Roman citizen. Uh, So he gets protected. He's in a Roman uh, holding cell of some kind. And then God just happens to have, I say that happens in air quotes, happens to have uh, Paul's nephew who overhears a plot that the Jewish leaders are going to kill Paul. And Paul tells his nephew to go tell the Roman commander. The commander actually listens to this young man and he has an escort for him and he gets safely to Caesarea uh, Maritima on the coast and he has these officials who aren't believers who seem to be a little bit condescending to him but they still are interested in him and they keep him alive and they finally grant his request to appeal to Caesar and then through all the twists and turns that happen in the shipwreck he ends up in Rome so what were these prayers answered? Were these two specific things answered? Yes. Were they answered exactly the way that Paul thought they would be answered? No. He could never have dreamed of all those different circumstances that would have gotten him to Rome. But we would definitely have to say that God answered these requests. He was kept safe from evil men. His life was preserved. And he does arrive in um, Rome with joy. Uh, The very uh, final chapters there, the book of Acts, talk about him landing and and going up to uh, Rome and actually having uh, Christians coming out to meet him and he's actually welcomed by the church there so finally Paul closes this section at the bottom of 82 by including his own prayer that the God of peace would be with the Roman believers who were themselves somewhat divided along Gentile and Jewish lines So then we have this final set of greetings. So all of these names in verses 1 through 23. Um, It was pretty pretty customary in a Greek letter at that time to commend the letter's courier. So whoever was bringing the letter would usually get mentioned. And that seems to be why Phoebe's mentioned. You do kind of wonder, though, why so many other people are mentioned, why this is such a long list of names. Uh, one, one possibility that has been suggested that I think sounds plausible is that since Paul has never actually been there and he doesn't actually know all of the people in the church, he actually can name everybody he knows without the risk of leaving anybody out. You ever had that you know, feeling where you're going to start listing off a bunch of names in a group and you're afraid you might leave somebody out, right? But if the group is already pretty small, uh, there's no danger that Also, there seems to be some interconnectedness. So he's in Corinth, and he's writing to the church in Rome, but some of these people know each other. So it's not just that he's greeting people in Rome, but they're also sending greetings back uh, the other way. But Phoebe gets mentioned first because she is the lady that's delivering the church's letter. She's from the church in uh, Sancria, a small city outside Corinth. She's described here, depending on your translation of the Bible, either as a deacon or a servant 
of the congregation there that where he's writing. So this is, this is controversial, right? Because it plays into the debate over the role of women in the church, right? Should, should women be leaders or be a deacon in the church? So one way to think through this issue is to look at the different ways that this word can be translated. So the word translated deacon can refer to a person's servant or attendant. So that'd be the first two categories up there. I didn't even list all the places where it means servant because that's just too many. That's the most frequent way. So uh, Jesus will tell parables in the gospels where servants are doing things with a master. So it's a very common word. Uh, they'll refer to uh, the attendants or the servants in John chapter 2 or, who are part of the, the wedding ceremony. Remember when Jesus turns water into wine? Sometimes the, the word is translated as a minister. So Paul will regularly refer to himself as a minister. He's, he's not a deacon in a church in an official sense, but he's a servant in a general sense of Jesus Christ. He serves people, and so it's used that way. And there's at least three places where it seems to refer to an official position, an office in the church. Uh, the letter of Philippians is addressed to the elders and the deacons. So they, they're addressed at the very beginning of the letter. And then, of course, in 1 Timothy, there's actually there's qualifications for what a deacon should be. So those would be all of the different places that the word is used. So Paul uses this same word of a minister, a servant, or depending on the translation, a deacon for Tychicus. So I'm down to the kind of the bottom of that uh, longer paragraph there. So Tychicus is the man who carries the letter to the Ephesian believers and the letter to Colossae. So that's just kind of an interesting example, right? Because he seems to be doing the same thing that Phoebe's doing. Okay, So they're serving the church specifically by bringing this letter to another church. Uh, Paul will even use it sometimes for Satan's servants and false apostles. So there's some places in the New Testament where you don't want this word to be applied to you, right? Because it's used in a negative sense. So last bullet point. Since the word can be used for the office of a deacon, some argue that Phoebe was a deacon or deaconess in the church in Sancria. So you can see several of our... Uh, conversation partners that we've seen through this whole lesson and there's at least two English versions and historically and uh, churches that have congregational government so a church like my own a Baptist church we would say we're, we're congregationally governed we're elder led and we're deacons served those would be the three statements we would make but there's been churches that would have that exact same setup but some of those servants some of those deacons who serve the church would be women. They would have an office of, of deaconesses. So this would be one argument. One thing to keep in mind, though, is that the office of a deacon was not necessarily an administrative position, with the key, key emphasis on the necessarily, right? It can be an administrative position in some churches, but it doesn't necessarily have to be an administrative one. And it does not require the ability to teach. So if you look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy, the one thing that stands out as different between the elder and the deacon is that the elder specifically has to be able to teach. That same thing is not said about the deacon. I think deacons can teach. It's just not required of them that they're able to teach. However, a deacon serves an essential function by assisting the pastor elders with the congregation's physical, financial, and social needs. 
It seems that rather than spelling out specific tasks, the New Testament allows each congregation to define the role of deacons based on their own needs. So each church has a group of people that they've designated as deacons. Uh, they're doing the types of things that all Christians should do, right? They're just exemplary in them. We're all supposed to be servants. We're all supposed to serve. There's just some people that are exemplary in their service, and so they're recognized as such by the congregation. And I think the New Testament, since it never specifically says what they're supposed to be doing in their exemplary service, I think it's up to each church to define what that could look like. So I just throw out some possibilities, but this isn't an exhaustive list. Hospitality, visitation, building grounds, meals for those in need, financial stewardship, security, missionary care, etc. If Phoebe, skipping down a couple sentences, if Phoebe was a recognized deacon in this congregation, it seems that her role included not only acting as a courier, but also as a helper for many. So that's the other word that Paul uses for her. She's a helper. That could be translated as a benefactor or a patron. It was probably used for a person with high social standing and wealth who assisted those in need. So she's probably a lady of means, of some social standing. And I probably, this one I can't prove, but it's just a hunch. Other people have suggested this to me. That based on what we know of letter writing at the time, that she gets to deliver the letter, not just because she happens to be going to Rome, but also because she's educated enough that she could read it or even explain it. She could actually tell people what Paul's intentions could have been in a particular phrase. So, however, as the courier who was delivering the letter and likely explaining its contents, where the Romans uh, might have had a question regarding intentions, uh, Paul could have been using the word helper in that sense. So that's actually a big typo. I realized this when I was going through the notes just this afternoon. You see my third line of that second paragraph there? where I say Paul could have used the word, just put a big line right through that, if you would. <laughs> that line and the second line right after it, all the way through the word courier. I had two places in my notes where I was talking about words, and I conflated them together. So everything that I'm saying there really applies to the word servant. So big, big typo in my notes there. So from where it says Paul could have, all the way down to courier. And then I'll pick up where it says Paul is entrusting Phoebe. So Paul is entrusting Phoebe with a great responsibility and not only seeing that the letter arrives, but also likely with the expectation that she will be able to answer questions regarding it. So let me wrap that section up and then we'll look at some of these other names. So whether or not she held what we would call an office in the church, Phoebe had been of great help to many Christians. So Paul asked the Romans to help her with whatever she might need. We do not know that much about the roles that different individuals played in the early church, at least I don't. However, as the final list of names makes clear, individuals did play important roles. I've said this before, I'll say it again, Christianity is a team sport. <laughs> it's not something that we do individually. The whole, I don't know if I should say the whole, but one of the main purposes of this letter was to promote unity in the church in Rome. And one of the things that's interesting in a letter that's so much about unity is that Paul kind of illustrates this unity by naming a bunch of different people who played very important roles. A lady named Phoebe, who was exemplary in her service, who is serving in this very special way. 
and then a whole list of people. And as we go through these names, we notice a couple things. One is there seems to be both Jewish and Gentile names. So the type of unity that Paul's been calling for is actually illustrated in the names. Uh, there seem, there's both men and women. There's some names we're not really sure which they are, but there's some that are very clear, so he names men and women. Uh, there seems to be people who are slaves or servants and also people who have uh, high social positions. So you're describing a variety of different people that, humanly speaking, wouldn't all be in the same group. Like, they wouldn't have showed up for the same country club or the same trade guild, right? They didn't have something, humanly speaking, that brought them together, but they do have Christ in common. Christ has knit them together in a family. So let's just, uh, there's not a whole lot you can dive into in a list of names, but we'll just make a few observations, right? So the bottom of the page there about Prisca. So Prisca is actually, would probably be a more technical translation. Her name is Prisca, but she goes by Priscilla. So it's a way of uh, shortening her name in a friendly way, but it's a shortening that makes it longer. So, So the example I gave down there in the footnotes would be Anne versus Annie, right? So sometimes when you have a friendly way of referring to a person, we actually make their name longer. You can go from Ann to Annie, Dan to Danny. If her name is Prisca or something like that, and it's Priscilla, Paul likes to call her Prisca, which is her proper name. When Luke is telling the story about her in Acts, he's probably more at her level age-wise or thinks of her more in a friendly manner. He refers to her as Priscilla, which is the name that normally we refer to her as. Yep. Why is she listed before her husband? Yeah. So the, the explanations that are usually given, and I don't know any way to prove this right or wrong, is that she's either has better education or social standing, uh, or maybe just more equipped to teach. Remember, they're the ones who are discipling Apollos when Paul meets them. Maybe she's just more of an outgoing vocal personality. That's the other suggestion. There's something about her that when the husband, wife, couple are named, people just always think of her first. And we're not exactly sure why, but it could have been her social standing or her education. I don't know any way to to know for sure, but those are the possibilities that get thrown out. So remember, they were uh, Jewish believers who Paul said had been kicked out of Rome when all of the Jews had been kicked out of Rome because they were seemed to have been, uh, you know, they brought to the emperor's attention that there was conflict going on about the Christ, and he didn't care, so he just said, you all have to leave. They end up in Corinth. That's where Paul meets them. Uh, now they're back in the church in, in Rome. Uh, so he asked them to be greeted. Uh, he refers here to Eponidas, the first convert in Asia, so the province of which Ephesus was the chief city is mentioned alongside them. Uh, The other believers mentioned in these greetings are only mentioned here in the New Testament as far as we know. Uh, There's some of them like Mary. You know, you're tempted to think, well, maybe this is Mary, the mother of Jesus, but we just don't know because Mary, as far as we can tell, was the most common name for a Jewish girl in the first century. It's basically a Greek version of Miriam, okay? The mother, not the mother of Moses, the sister of Moses, right? So there's lots of little girls in Judea 
that were named after Moses' sister Miriam. All right, so there's lots of Miriams or Marys, depending on how you spell it. However, the names are a mixture, we said, of Jewish and Greek or Latin names. So, for example, in verses 14 through 15, you've got Hermes and Olympus. There's not too many Jewish boys named Hermes and Olympus, right? Those are, those are classic Greek names, right? They're from pagan mythology. Uh, but on the other hand, twice Paul mentions his kinsmen. He does that in verse 7 and verse 11. Uh, the Naz. The NASB would have something like kinsmen. The NIV smooths that out to my fellow Jews to make sense of it, and they're, they're right. That's what he's referring to. He's, he's talking about his countrymen. Uh, beside the congregation in Priscilla and Aquila's home, several other congregations are mentioned. So you remember back in the very first lesson, I said there's probably not like one church in Rome, as in they all meet in one building. The letter is probably going to lots of congregations that all collectively are the believers in Rome, and they meet in different people's households. And so probably a lot of these people that are being named are known because they're the leaders of a household or the household meets in their house. They're the patrons or the benefactors. So, for example, there's the house of Aristobulus and those of Narcissus. Uh, these also could be slaves. So if you're from the house of Aristobulus and the house of Narcissus, this could mean that you're a slave who lives in this home. Something we don't think about very often, but if you were a, a slave, which most people in the Roman world were slaves, that was the largest group of people, and you came to Christ, um, you, you couldn't just leave your household in most situations, right? So you're... you're fellow believers, likely the ones you could congregate and meet with regularly, would have been your fellow slaves in the house. And then if God so blessed you, maybe a master like Philemon, who was also a believer, but you were still meeting within a household. There is an Aristobulus in verse 10 that's possibly the grandson of Herod the Great. So some people have tried to make that connection. Uh, so he died, Herod the Great died, um, or this grandson died in Rome in 48 and 49. So some people have gotten excited about that, thinking, okay, Herod the Great's grandson could have ended up in Rome, and he could have had a church that's meeting in his house. Uh, we don't know for sure, though, because that's still a, a pretty common Greek name. But this does seem to have some support by the fact in verse 11, there's a man named Herodian mentioned. So there's at least one man in the church in Rome who had some connection to the Herods who used to rule in, in Judea. So this is what I mean by there's different types of people. There's some evidence of slaves here, but there's also evidence of people with some position. Uh, the third bullet point there in the first century context, it's striking how many women are named by Paul. So he sees lots of these different women as not only fellow believers, but also co-workers. So there's Phoebe, Prisca, Mary, Junia, there's some debate over Junia. I have a footnote about that. Uh, some have tried to argue that she's a man. It should be translated Junius, but probably most likely it's Junia, it's a girl. Uh, Tryphenia and Tryphosa, how would you like? They're probably sisters, I'm guessing. You know, what are the odds of two people that, with rhyming names back to back? So likely two sisters. Uh, Persis, uh, Rufus's mother, and then Julia. So it's possible that this Rufus is the same Rufus that's mentioned whose father carried the cross. 
So this could be one other place where we do have another connection in the New Testament, um, but we just don't know for sure. Uh, Rufus, again, is a, is a fairly common name. But notice this emphasis on service. Paul's not just naming people, but he's also naming them because they're, they're servants. They're participating in the mission of Christ. He says, Mary worked very hard for you. He refers to Adronicus and Junia. That's probably a husband-wife team. He calls them my fellow prisoners. So at some point, uh, they had been imprisoned for the sake of Christ. He calls Urbanus a co-worker. He calls the two sisters, Tryphenia and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. He calls Rufus a choice man in the Lord, which could refer to service, uh, but also could be a reference to his election to salvation. So those are all the people in Rome who are being greeted. And then in verses 17 through 20, he switches and he starts referring to the believers that are with him that are sending their greetings on. So these are people with him in Corinth. I'll stop there just for a second. Any, any questions I glossed over? This is mostly so I can drink coffee. Catch my breath for a second. Isn't it unusual that women didn't have a prominent place in history there, that he uses a lot of women? Yes. Yeah, I, th I think it is. Um, I, I can't pretend like I've read tons of Greek letters, but from people who have done more research than I have, I think they would tell you that this is, this is unusual, um, that there's this emphasis on different social classes, but also on both men and women in the church. There is a little bit of, I forgot this slide, there's a little bit of discussion over why he can call this one, this couple, he calls them apostles. So uh, there's this couple, Adronicus and Junia, he calls them apostles. It's kind of like the same issue that you have with the word for deacon. The word is flexible. So there are apostles in a technical sense, as in people who were personally commissioned by Jesus Christ to speak as his representatives and then had the marks of apostle. Remember we saw that passage? But apostle is also used in a non-technical sense, just for anyone who acts as a messenger or as an envoy. So it could be that they're just a missionary team. It's a husband and wife uh, combo, so to speak, who have gone out. Uh, they've, they've acted as missionaries or apostles of the church. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're functioning in the, in the technical sense. For example, this would be Epaphroditus. He's referred to as a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, it's translated as a messenger, but that's the same word that also could be translated as apostle. So that would be a, another place where this is used. All right, so in verse 17, the second bullet point there on page 86, we talked about this, this passage where he refers to false teachers. I think, I think we've covered that fairly, but these are those I have there in quotes who cause divisions and put obstacles. This is actually a, a command, an instruction from the apostle himself speaking for Jesus Christ. We're, we're not allowed to be indifferent to false doctrine. When professing believers are teaching things that are clearly contrary to sound doctrine as found in scripture, we're supposed to take note of them and separate from them. Uh, we're not supposed to welcome them into our churches in the, in the spirit of unity because they themselves have already caused the wedge. 
Bottom of the page, Paul sends greetings to the Romans from Christians in Corinth. He names Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater among the Jewish believers. And then he names Tertius. Tertius is the, the amanuensis or the secretary. He's the one that's been writing this letter. So you can picture Tertius and Paul. They've probably gone back and forth. I imagine Tertius several times saying, Paul, do you really want to say it that way? <laughs> do you want to change this wording? Going back and forth and Paul putting his seal of approval on the final project. But all the while, as these men are working on it and perhaps even sharing it with other believers in Corinth for their insights, God is superintending, watching over this whole process so that what is written is actually inspired scripture just as if it had come out of his own mouth. Then you have some other Greeks. You've got Gaius, good Greek name, Erastus, Quartus. So there's some evidence here that Erastus might have been a well-known um, official in Corinth. The last man there named Quartus. So these, these names are funny to me because Tertius means third, Quartus means fourth. So sometimes the Latin-speaking moms and dads weren't ori original with their names. So pro I'm guessing it's something like, like uh, you know, we have Joe Smith the first, Joe Smith the second, Joe Smith the third. And sometimes by short, you could call them Trey or third or something like that. You have something similar happening in Latin. So you have this man named fourth, Quartus, is someone about whom we know nothing else, but we do know that all, like all followers of Jesus, he is the brother of Paul and those in Rome. So just want to point that out one final time. You got a man named Cordus, a good Latin name. He, he's, not, he's definitely not Jewish. Uh, but you have Paul, who was born Saul of Tarsus, uh, the former Pharisee, right, who at one point in his life wouldn't have been seen, you know, he wouldn't have been caught dead sharing a meal with a Gentile, right? And now he can call this man his brother, right? They're all part of one spiritual family. I'll put the, uh, the final, uh, or not the final, but the theme statement that we looked at in chapter 1. If you remember from Romans chapter 1, verse 17, when Paul was starting out this letter, he says that the righteousness of God was being revealed through the gospel. So the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. And we took this sentence from Thielman's book, and we said that it could have three separate components that we can identify. So how is God's righteousness being revealed through the gospel? Well, God first, his saving righteousness, rescues sinners from condemnation. So God is, is righteous because he's promised in scripture to save sinners, and he's completing his promise. So he is righteous in that sense. Well, how is he doing it? Two, he's giving them righteous, righteousness. This is probably the main focus in the letter, right? This is the, the point that Martin Luther, in his study of the book of Romans, fixated upon. It had a tremendous change in his life that then led to the Protestant Reformation. That the righteousness isn't something that we earn, but it's something that's actually given to us. So God is savingly rescuing us from our sins, and he's righteous to do that but he's doing that by giving us a righteousness, and he's doing it in such a way that his own righteous character remains intact. So he's able to keep it intact because he's crediting us with Christ's righteousness. He's putting our sins on Christ. That's our justification. 
And then also, everyone who has been justified, he's also sanctifying. He gives us the new birth through the Spirit. We're now new people, and we're progressively being uh, having sin removed from our lives, and that will be completed some point when Jesus Christ comes for us. Right? At our resurrection, we will be glorified. So, And this is happening, remember he said, from faith to faith. You remember that, that kind of cryptic statement we looked at? And I said there that it could have a distributive sense. So from faith to faith. So each time a person comes to saving faith in Jesus, all the way from Jerusalem up to Illyricum in that map that we saw, and still spreading out in the world today. Each time someone comes to faith in Christ, this righteousness of God is still being revealed. I give you some bullet points there where Mu in our textbook uh, notice that there seems to be some parallelism going on where Paul is a, is a uh, skilled writer and with maybe a little bit of help from his amanuensis are thinking of parallels in the doxology to the opening chapter but I'll just close with the final benediction itself. So these are Paul's final words in the letter. He's, he's expressing praise to God. And he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. And then what is this gospel? That is the message about Jesus the Messiah, which is based on the revelation of the mystery kept secret for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Any, any final questions you guys have? Yes, sir. Wes. The, the constant tension, there is, and it seems like there is a constant tension of, of striving, striving for unity, you know? Yep. Uh, the passage, I forget where it's at, you know, striving to do the best to strive for unity and for the mind of peace, you know, and, and standing against fear. Uh, Yeah, I think it's important to remember that the unity is found in Christ. So he's the glue that holds us together. So it has to be revolving around what he's actually said, his words to us. So if someone strays from those words, then we can't pull them back in and pretend like there's a unity that doesn't exist. But we can cultivate a genuine unity by all moving towards that center, which is our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's said to us in, in scripture. Uh, you know, if we keep that at the center, uh, that can create a genuine unity. All kinds of artificial things that we could do to create unity. You know, try to come up with hobbies that we all have in common or different social functions that we all think are fun. And those can be instruments towards a goal. But if they become the goal themselves, it won't create a lasting unity. Um, unity has to be around Christ. Any other questions or comments? All right, well, thank you very much for being part of the class. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you. You all are dismissed. Merry Christmas. You as well.